0: Well, it's a privilege for me to bring you to, to share the, God, the word of God with you um, as I study this week uh, this important topic of elders in the church, leaders. So, I want to share with you who are to be the elders to the leaders of the church. What makes people uh, qualified for the job? Who are we to seek in terms of putting people in leadership? We always say that the leadership is very important. I think the health and well-being of a church or any organization for that matter, leadership, it starts from the top. So as I share with you, i humbly come before you to uh, teach you this verse and go over this text and we'll cover part one today and um, we'll have a second portion next week. You know, Bob Dylan has a song called You Gotta Love Somebody and it says, I don't mind being called a servant of God but... I don't like being treated like one. You know, perhaps many pastors and elders feel this way. You know, they feel like there's no way out. Um, Some people are just stuck in a position, and many people don't last very long in one position. I think average stay length of uh, tenure for a pastor is less than two years in a particular church. You know, but one thing that I think James and I I think James would have all agree with me. But we feel the contrary. Uh, For me, especially, that um, all of you treat us with great respect and more than than I deserve. But it's a heavy weight on us. Um, We come with healthy fear. It's a daunting task to be a church leader and to be leader at Cornerstone. We do this, again, in fear of God. You know, I share with you the biblical... As I share the biblical views of the eldership in, the, in Christ church. I want to share with you today the, the true biblical view. And also, I want to share with you as a, as a leader in this church, just my heart as well, to come to you and just frankly share with you some of my thoughts and what we go through here um, and as leaders of Cornerstone. But one thing clear to me in this office, one thing that is clear to me, it's really Personally, it's beyond me. Um, This biblical model that's portrayed in First Timothy three and Titus one—it is way beyond me. Uh, You know, I think if I went to another church like FBC or Grace Community Church and somehow have have enough courage to say I'm an elder there, I think I think people would just laugh at me. But I come before you today to share with you to detach myself and envision. Man like Paul and Pastor James and um, or someone else, but it, my only conclusion is that I do not deserve this title. It is a overwhelming description that's depicted in this text, and I am only preaching. I am preaching someone I believe other than myself. Historically, in uh, about 394 AD. A, there was a young leader, young elder in a church, Neopotion, and, and another church leader, a famous church leader, Jerome, sent a letter to him. It was a rebuke of his church for hypocrisy, for showing more concern for the appearance of church buildings and care for just aesthetic things rather than what the church needed. And he wrote this. Many build churches nowadays. Their walls and pillars are glowing with marble. Their ceilings are glittered with gold. Their altars are studded with jewel. Yet the choice of Christ's ministers, no heed is paid. I think multitudes of churches today repeat the same error. Over hundreds, thousands of years, similar errors are still being paid today. So the only option we have is to go back to the Scriptures and see what the Scriptures say. We could be pragmatic about this, right? We could get an MBA, you know, we have an MBA president, or we could get a Rhodes Scholar um, to come in, okay, to run a church, make it successful, have marketing programs. But there are, there are prescriptions of man, prescriptions of scripture, how a church is run. How can we have prescriptions outside of scripture to run a church? Therefore, we have, as Christians, we have no option but to rely on scripture to teach us and tell us the biblical prescription requirements for a church leader. You know, many seeing many churches today are completely ignorant to the biblical requirements of a spiritual leader, an elder. I think most common mistakes made by churches are they're too eager to implement leaders, to have somebody. But When you get pressed to a point where you are forced into situations, you're more apt to appoint unqualified men, let alone biblical men. There's always a need for shepherds. It seems like there's just about every church is in need of a shepherd. Their flock, their church members, who are not being fed, they're hungry, they're eager, they want to learn. But like you have unqualified men in these positions, where they're not leading the flock, they're not taking care of the flock. I think nothing more is damaging. Nothing more is damaging than poor leadership. A poor church leader can spiritually and morally corrupt the very people they, eat. people who eagerly support them and look up to them, and find out they're not qualified. And that is a sad case the sad situation you know there's almost a modern trend where church pastors are being disciplined and removed and some of them won't even leave and they're readily accepted back to in the in the name of forgiveness we accept everybody but we have to remember what what does the bible say you know the call of elder or pastor is a serious calling a high calling perhaps the highest Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, To me, the work of preaching is the highest and the greatest and the most glorious calling which anyone can ever be called. You know, Bible requires biblical eldership and biblically qualified men to lead the church. You know, there's an overriding concern in the New Testament. Relationship to church leaders. It ensures the right kind of men must serve the church right, biblical, qualified men must serve the church. You know, eldership is not an honorary position that's given to an uh, individual because they have been to church so many times, so many years, and did so many ministries, so you give them to them. That's not it. Nor is it to be viewed as a board position some type of um, honorable position where they're rich givers or they're successful businessmen outside the church. Or they have charisma. They have charismatic personalities that attract men, other people. Nor they should be positions that are filled by only seminary men. That is not required in the Bible. That is good. One ought to study scriptures. In this text, it says, if any man, in verse 5, eldership is open actually to all men, any men, who meet the biblical requirements. The New Testament is clear on this. It is a high calling for a man to preach the word of God. What an honor and privilege it is. And few are called to this office. There are stringent requirements which we'll study today in the word of God. We'll see, like today, what's the biggest news on, on, sports news on ESPN or LA Times or whom? Kobe Bryant. Man committed adultery. Maybe, arguably, one of the best NBA players. He makes X amount of dollars. He has great endorsements. But that man is no longer qualified ever to be an elder in a church. Nor is our former president, Bill Clinton. A president of the United States, Rhodes Scholar, has about 15 degrees. You know, they say Bill Clinton, you know, you could say what about his moral character, but they say his staff said when he was in negotiating table with other world leaders, they knew they had the smartest man in that room. Very smart man. He's not qualified to be an elder. Nor is someone like Jesse Jackson. I don't even know what he's a leader of anymore. He committed adultery. He, he admitted to that. He is not qualified. I'll go one step further. Nor is King David or King Solomon. Two men of God who continue to be kings after committing adultery. They are not qualified to lead God's church. Samuel Logo, Logan Brengold said this, an outstanding church leader said this about church leadership. Church leadership is not won by promotions but by many prayers and tears. It is attained by the confessions of sin, much heart-searching and humbling before God, by self-surrender, a courageous sacrifice of every idol, a bold, deathless, uncompromising, uncomplaining, embracing of the cross, by an eternal, unfaltering look onto Jesus crucified. I think that's very well put. God looks at the noblest men it's a serious call to be a church leader and God looks at the heart a man of God leading the church must be compelled to lead as well he must desire First Timothy 3 1 says man aspires to be an off, uh, overseer okay, it's a way of life you know, I was at Faith Bible Church Marcus you know this there was an elder there named Earl Dannon he's an, elder. He's an older gentleman he's blind you know, I would like to have a elder, blind elder come to you and rebuke you. That would be, be something else. He said, one thing that will always stick with me, what he said. He said, eldership is a way of life. And that is so true. It is all-consuming for a man's, a man's heart to be an elder. There's something you can't shake. Regardless of how debilitating some of your circumstances may be, you go on. You're still an elder. That you watch your flock like a hawk and say, Not on my watch. That you have that kind of love for your church, your flock. And you don't abandon your post because things are difficult in life. That you're too busy. That you have difficult circumstances. Maybe there's a death in the family. Maybe your child is sick. But you go on. The commentator Patrick Fairbairn says, The seeking here, aspiring to an eldership, must be a proper kind, not promoting a cardinal ambition, but the aspirations of which the heart itself experiences through the grace of God, and which longs to see others coming to participate in that heavenly gift. And that's a proper view as any man approaches eldership. That's what it ought to be. Uh, I think Pastor James covered in Um, the the background of Titus. Um, This letter was written in about 63 through 67 AD. And there are two pastoral um, epistles that Paul wrote to Timothy and um, Titus. These two men were led to Christ by Paul. And um, they were given the task of appointing elders in their area. And for Titus in this text we're concerned with is the island of Crete. And this is very important. Island of Crete was a very defiled area. There was moral corruption, debauchery. They were famous for their wine. So there was much drunkenness and it was a uh, moral corruption was rampant and Crete was known for that. Okay? So, when we start, as we start with verse 5, it says, The reason I left you in Crete was to set in order, remaining matters, to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, Paul gives two reasons why he left Titus in Crete. Number one, that he might straighten out what was unfinished. Okay? To tend to unfinished matters. To, it literally means to amend what is defective. So make it whole. So obviously Paul and Titus had previous conversations in these matters. So when Paul spoke of this, Titus knew what Paul was talking about. And secondly, what, are we, what is Titus to do? Appoint elders in every town. Every city. Okay. There was a basic deficiency that, that demanded in the church that Paul to appoint elders. And that was number one on Paul's agenda. Okay. It shows that local church there or the congregation of believers in each area were defective or lacked qualified leaders. And this was an urgent need. So as we go into these qualifications... Considerations for an elder. I want to talk about um, biblical view of eldership. And the instructions concerning the eldership in the church. And the word elder is comes in both New and Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it refers to, came from Israel's use of the word older men. It literally means older men or older leaders. Okay? Numbers 11.16 says, so the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me 70 men and the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them. Then when we go to the New Testament, the word elder indicates spiritual maturity. Maturity in wisdom and also with maturity in knowledge. Okay. In Greek, in the New Testament, the elder is presbyteros or presbyter. We you, you get the word, uh, the Presbyterian from it. And we quickly, I would go over this. The word also, the bishop, overseer, is the same term or same individual. And we see in Ephesians 4, they're called pastors or teachers or shepherds used to describe the same position. And Paul interchangeably uses this in his expressions to describe the same office. Now, these different words describes the different features in the ministry. Sometimes we're teachers, we teach, sometimes we shepherd, we shepherd your heart, or maybe in practical matters, in different ways. But there are four foundational aspects, which last one we will be going into study for this week and next week. But three others I will describe to you, because it's very important. Okay, There are four basic foundational aspects of eldership. These are basically ground rules. Number one is shared leadership. Number two is unanimous leadership. Number three is male leadership. And lastly, what we'll discuss in detail in the next two weeks is qualified leadership. Okay? Let me briefly go over the first three and then we'll go in depth in the last one. Number one, shared leadership. It's to be plurality of elders. The consistent pattern in the New Testament church that every church had at least two elders. It's always in a plural form. Okay. In Acts 11.30, it says elders at the church of Antioch. Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas points elders. Okay. In Acts 15, elders at the church of Jerusalem. So on and so forth. There are many, many verses that um, describe that. And there are examples of men being together and united um, in leading the church. After the ascension of Christ, how many disciples there are? Twelve, compromising the first leadership, the Council of Jerusalem Church. Okay. They taught, and they were a complete, solid example of unity in the church. In Acts 15, elders of the Church of Jerusalem appoint, uh, united with twelve apostles to deliberate, uh, deliberate over a doctrinal controversy. Okay. In James 5.14, James instructs the sick believers to call on the elders. Only time a singular form of elder is used is to describe the office of the elder. Okay? There's always more than one. So, maybe you have the question, how many is the right biblical form? Long as there's more than one. It's a plural form. Okay? There's nothing mentioned in the New Testament regarding the exact number of men to be chosen to lead a church. Secondly, unanimous leadership. That's council of equals, that there is no one person that stands out in the sense that they have more power than another person. One may have more public ministry, but in the leadership of the church, that there is by definition the elder structure of government is a collective leadership that each shares equally the position, authority, and the responsibility of the church. So formally, it's collective, or shared, or team, or plurality. They all have equal responsibility. There are practical benefits uh, for this as well. It balances people's weaknesses. Everybody has weaknesses, right? We all have weaknesses, and what we have, blind spots. There are certain things some men could see, and some men may not see. So you have diversity as well. I think, if you have a single leader... One man leading the church, I think it's prescription for trouble or maybe downfall. The team structure, different men complementing one another is very important. It also provides accountability as well. Accountability. We are all prone to sin. We all sin, but we keep each other in a genuine accountability and that's crucial in ministry, especially in the leadership. Leadership must confront one another's sins. If we can't be pure at the top, what do you expect the flock to be? I think my conclusion in this area is that it was never the Lord's will, our Lord's will, for the local church to be shepherded or controlled by one individual. There's a great wisdom in this. The concept of pastor as a lonely person serving the congregation is unscriptural. Unscriptural. It's not founded anywhere in Scripture. Now, there's leaders in that. You see in the first 12, who is the obvious leader who's most vocal in the first 12? Peter. Other guys, you don't even hear about. But we know they're there. So some of us have more public ministry than others, but they share equal responsibility. Number three, very unpopular one in modern day, Male leadership, only men, are to lead the church and to take um, eldership in the church. This offends many people, even church-going people. And nothing is more objectionable in the minds of contemporary people than the concept of all male leadership. It's very politically incorrect. However, it must be this because the scripture says so. In the minds of modern men, Excluding men and women from church leadership is very discriminatory. It's sexist, and it displays another emphasis on displaying male dominance. I believe, I clearly believe this. In any form of sexual discrimi- discrimination based on sex, is dishonoring to God. But most, one thing more dishonoring to God is to defy His Word. We need to be clear about this. That teaching, um, biblical teaching regarding men and women's role is, um, as a, we're full as person, as we are dignified before God. There's no distinction in gender, but we have different roles. Okay. You know, Paul states a Christian principle of women conduct in First Timothy two. Let a woman gently, uh, quietly receive instruction with entire submission. But I did not allow women to teach or exercise authority over men. And this is God's design. They're not women, or I'm not saying women are any less able, less capable. I think my wife is more capable than me, more smarter than me. But this is what Bible scribe prescribes. Alexander Schrock says this in his book, Biblical Eldership. says, To restrict women from the church eldership would be unjust and discriminatory if we were done arbitrarily by males for their own selfish ends. But if the restriction was part of God's plan, then it is not discriminatory. I agree with that. So lastly, this is number four. It's not last in the thing, but we'll go into detail. Qualified. We're just now starting. The fourth aspect. Qualification of leadership. Qualification of an elder. We'll spend most of our time, all of our time, just considering one verse. Verse 6 is, An elder must be blameless. Okay. And it describes two, two clauses there. The husband of one wife with faithful children who cannot be charged with dissipation or rebellion. First of all, the New Testament model for finding and appointing elders. i want to briefly talk about this. A church looking for a pastor usually interviews him, hires him. It's like a hired gun. And if it's acceptable to the board members, he's hired to serve and becomes a leader instantly. Okay. Then after a few years, maybe, maybe they realize that this person wasn't it and they let him go and look for another. And you ask this question, like hiring a person outside, bringing them on board, is that right? To because there's need in the leadership. Is that right? I ask myself this. This is a difficult question. Is there any sign of recruitment in the eldership in the New Testament? Or, nor does the seminary training automatically qualify someone to be a leader or a pastor. Are you a pastor because you have commit, um, finished, completed your seminary training? Or they qualify? Nor one success outside of the church in their business or whatever in their career. They have achieved various levels. They climbed the corporate ladder. Does that qualify a man? Does that ensure success of him being an elder in a church? According to the New Testament, I believe that elders were found within the local church base upon their willingness to serve on their moral and spiritual character and maturity. They were maturing spiritually maturing individuals, growing individuals with upstanding moral character. And they see if they were qualified. So I've divided in this verses five through nine four categories of qualification. Number one is universal qualification that's in verse 6 as well. The elder must be blameless. Next is household qualification. Husband the one wife and having faithful children who cannot be charged with dissipation or rebellion. Next week we'll go over two others. There's doctrinal qualification and more specific character qualifications. Okay? So, number one, universal qualification universal qualification you know elders must be recognized by the body and affirmed by the body that's very important and to do that it says the one must be overseer must be blameless this is the overarching principle it's the sort of the blanket clause in an elder qualification is must be blameless or above reproach okay. A blameless means one is without indictment or accusation or unblemished character. Calvin writes, Blameless he does not mean someone who is free from every fault, for no such man could ever be found, but one marred by no disgrace that could be diminished, that, that could diminish his authority, he should be a man with unblemished reputation. You know, obviously, being blameless, there's no person who is completely faultless or faultless or sinless. But it says blameless. He is one who has nothing that can be, that charged against him or brought about him and questioned in his integrity. Uh, this quality stands at the head of the list, because it has a general and broad quality that covers the whole life of an elder. Upstanding moral character is first and foremost requirement. And Lord calls all the leaders to be godly leaders, men who are exemplary and live as well as their sound teachings, they live up to their teachings, and they preach and teach and pattern their virtue and their devotion to God. Okay. So mistakenly, many church leaders today they view their roles as a promoter, businessman, executives, or even psychologists or CEOs or entertainers. There's no nothing in that job description in the New Testament. That's man-made stuff. We are not here to ret- entertain you. We are to teach you the Word of God and shepherd your heart. What does the Bible use? Some of the words that you describe an elder, New Testament? It says faithful men, able teachers, useful vessels, bond servants. Bond servant means a volunteer slave, person who sl- volunteers to be slave. to whom to God. Paul calls himself volunteers all through the, the, his epistles. This is the overarching. One must be blameless. and so we have to remember this. this blameless of, is required through all the other qualifications. It's overarching qualifications, and within this, we have other qualifications. So the two that we're going to talk about are qual- uh, household qualifications. One's marriage refers to one's marriage and one's children. Now we have to note again, not only in Crete, Roman, Greek, and Jewish cultures of the day was just falling apart in terms of the family. Many men had concubines, many practiced. Um, went to see prostitutes. Polygamy was rampant. The moral fiber of that era was just not very good. Okay. so in, Also, you could see that, that. That was so rampant. You could see Paul writing this. This is absolute in the sense that this we can't have men who are practicing these things. They need to seek godly men. Because society was sorely, morally bankrupt. So elders must be able to manage his household. 1 Timothy 3 says this. He must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. You know, Puritans refer to the family as the little church. It's an extension of the church, or it's tied together. We always say this in our church, is that, strong families build strong churches. So, the husband of one wife. It's a management of one's marital life. Husband of one wife. Again, keep in mind, the overarching theme of what Paul's teaching here is blamelessness. Husband of one wife. What does that mean? Literally means one woman man Okay? or one wife-husband. Okay? In other words, who is he supposed to be faithful to? To his one wife. Okay? Man's marriage in his home reveals a great deal about one's character, a man's character, his ability to lead the flock. Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.5, If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of his church of God? let's go down the line let's take the easy one what does Paul mean by this one woman man or one wife husband what the text says is uh, husband of one wife let's take the easy one is he leading to someone who can't be have been practicing polygamy that's obvious right he can't be practicing polygamy and be a leader in the church that's obvious so let's rule that one out go to take the easy ones first nor is it what is it saying is it saying that um, is it required for... Is Paul requiring men to be married in order to lead? I would rule that one out because First Corinthians 7 says, I think Pastor James covered this in many months ago. What does he say? He exhorts singleness. There's benefits of singleness for the what? Sake of the ministry, right? You can minister better because you could single. You could, uh, you're single. All those are missionary teams? They're all single. Okay, It's difficult for married people to commit that much time to go. Yeah, there's advantages of being single and having more time on your hands. You worry about yourself instead of your wife, your husband, your family, your children. Hey, I could just pick up my packet uh, thing and go, you know. If I were Daniel Pio's age, I could maybe be popular as him in Czech (laughs) if I was single, but there's other things that I need to take care of rather than being popular. So, we would rule that out. It doesn't require, I don't think Paul is requiring men to be married to be an elder. So, what does this talk about? What is this talking about? How about divorce and remarriage? Can a widower remarry a spouse who dies and remarries another woman? This is disqualified because he's married twice. Now, his husband of two wives. Obviously, one died. A widower. You know, practice a widower remarrying is perfect, perfectly permissible in the New Testament, Romans 7. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Timothy 5. Scripture nowhere provides a, or even suggests that there's a moral question to remarriage after the death of a spouse. In case of divorce, we know that Scripture says Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce. Okay. But although God hates divorce, He graciously permits it in certain circumstances, Right? In 1 Corinthians 7.15, if an unbelieving spouse leaves, let him or her leave. The brother or sister is not under the bondage in such cases. So this is difficult to discern. So I would go back again to the faithfulness, faithfulness to his wife clause and to tie that with blamelessness. Okay? I, what Paul, I believe, is referring to, if you match those two, blamelessness, and faithful to one's um, husband, the one wife means this refers to the singularity, singular focus of man's faithfulness to his wife. It's a moral or sexual faithfulness okay, to his wife. It's a positive requirement: one's faithfulness in marriage. One who has demonstrated the constant faithfulness that his eyes are only for his wife. Now, you've got to remember the context. This is a very morally bankrupt society that Paul is talking about where all these morally um, objectionable things were occurring. Also, the characteristics, one other thing I would point out is very important that Paul mentions in Titus 1, all these qualities, even First Timothy 3, is these qualities are all of them are non-absolute. Non-absolute qualities. These are all things men are trying to achieve at certain level. No man is perfect, right? No man perfectly achieves any of these cat- categories, let alone all of them. Okay? Otherwise, we'd be perfect. Does perfect men ed- exist? And I always think, say this about perfection. is A perfect uh, elder or perfect Christian doesn't exist. It's like the unicorn, or the Easter Bunny. Or the L.A. Clippers ever winning a championship. It won't happen. It doesn't exist. It's a fantasy. Right? Yes, the standard should be high. Almost perfect as possible. But perfection is never demanded. This is what we're striving for. You have to remember that in discussing these categories. None of these qualities. Paul demands perfection but growing and maturing, yes. Okay? So if we take it in the absolute sense, married only once, then it would stand alone against all the other descriptions as the only absolute qualification. And I don't think that occurs here. Again, the point here is that the elder must be blameless in the area of marriage and his faithfulness to his wife. That nothing in the way would people would question his fidelity to his wife. That's the point Paul is making in summation, the elder must be unsold, have unsold reputation in marriage, in relationship with women. Faithfulness to his wife, and his cautiousness with other women, that he is upright and moral, that people don't question his character, how he carries on relationship. There's people in the church, yeah, we love him as a, a sister, But that he, ha- he guards his heart, that his heart, there's no question in anyone's mind, that his heart is only for his wife. That is the reputation that Paul desires to see in church eldership. The commentator, Philip Towner, says this and puts puts it into perspective. The point is not how often one can be married nor precisely what constitutes a legitimate marriage but rather how one conducts himself in his marriage. And I think that's an important thing. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. He's not looking for... for, um, Points are absolute things, but we're looking for his integrity, his life, and his marriage. The second point management of his children. With faithful children, who cannot be charged with dissipation and rebellion. You know, imagine if Pastor Todd, you know, saying, hey, Scripture says this, and, you know, about one's life and um, this is how to live your life and you know, you're sitting in the c- congregation and you see my kids are out of control right well, how, who is he to tell me how to live my life when his kids are completely out of control that's easy to, that's the right thing to say how can he be a a, a testimony unto him, God when his credibility like that would be completely shot we can't tell people how to live when your life is not in control. It would discredit the integrity of his message. The word of God that's has been taught. Now, we could agree that children of elders must be a good testimony to his leadership in the home. His leadership is in question. Now, the question is, to what degree? There are two issues that confront us here in this text. There's the word faithful comes into question faithful does it mean that faithful mean does it mean believing meaning having saving knowledge or faith or is that just faithful to the parents without the saving knowledge but are they just faithful is that does that qualify a man and that's a very important thing okay the word faithful comes from the Greek word pistos or from pistos it is means trustworthy, faithful, dependable, or believing and trusting person. Okay. So is Paul requiring elders that they must have believing children in order to qualify them to be church leaders? Or is he saying, can they just be faithful and orderly or loyal to their parents and does that qualify a man to be in church leadership? What is Paul referring to? Let's quickly cover one, the case for believing. It's a strong case too. Very strong. In the New Testament, the word pistos is never applied to anyone but a believer. Anytime a faithful person, a brother or sister in Christ is referred to, pistos is always used and, um, is never used to anyone but a believer faithful is never used for an unsaved person and their unbelievers are never referred to as being faithful okay. there's a main thought behind this is the elder cannot expect to manage God's family if he fails to manage and the critical litmus test is are his children or is his child a saved um, person There's other one. okay, And that's just being faithful and loyal. Okay? I know Pastor James stands on this. There are many pastors who would say about 70-80% will fall on the case of believing. So upon my deep study, that's my former position, was believing. Well, my study um, of this topic, and my conclusion is that it's referring to not believing, but a faithful person. Again, again let me go back to the last one. None of these qualities that's listed are absolute. Now, this one again was down that stand out as first one that would say it's 100% absolute. So we have to remember the context. What is the number one rule of F.O.F. I mean, interpretation in hermeneutics? You all take taken F.O.F. How many have taken F.O.F.? Raise your hand. Okay. What is number one rule? Context, right? Context of the verse. What is it saying? Now cuz believer is non degreed One's a believer or an unbeliever, right? That's pretty much black and white. There's no middle ground in that that stance. Okay? Especially when it's directly the two words that are associated in this sentence, dissipation or debauchery, okay, that refers to the drunkenness, especially in Crete, or rebellion or insubordination. You know, these words it goes faithful dissipation and rebellion. And these words describe someone who's associated with this indulge, indulgent lifestyle, out of control, wild, unruly, drunkenness state. Okay. In 1 Timothy 3 4, it says, Elders must keep his children under control with all dignity. As we rely on the context, and within this context, it would be unnatural to have an absolute clause with two non-absolute statements. So, if you go faithful, dissipation, and rebellion, if you're faithful, if you're believing, the two automatically would come the same. Paul would seemingly be redundant in iterating what is the obvious. If you're a believer, you expect one to be not to be rebellious or dissipation. Dissipation and debauchery is a very strong word. That's, that's not just disobedience, that's disobedience to the ninth degree. It's a very strong word. So word faithful. One, that's, one is faithful to his parents fits better in this context. They are not wasting away their lives. They're not rebellious. Furthermore, if it means a believer, then the believing is not enough. There's extra qualities. So does that mean that if the believer and if he rebels, the, at what point then does that disqualify a man? So, I would lean towards and I, my conclusion today is that it is a faithful to one's parents rather than um, believing child, one who has saving knowledge. And then one main thing is that we know that as much as we like to think as parents, I'm a parent of two and one more on the way and uh, we love We want to have control over our children. We want to lovingly discipline them. And we prayerfully seek to bring them to Christ so they would become believers one day. That they would go to heaven with me one day. That's my greatest fear. I think every Christian parent is something they would end up somewhere else. But we know that. That's only what God can do. Salvation is of the Lord's. I have to be humble in that area. Though the parents on this earth have the greatest impact and influence leading their children to Christ, they cannot force their children to believe. Yes, the home is the best place to look at knowing what kind of spiritual influence or spiritual leadership a man exhibits. Now who has more time, more vested interest than disciplining it will bring in a child to mature faith than his own children at home. But one's godly leadership, man's godly leadership may predict what may happen but does not guarantee perfect compliance. That happens in one's heart because nothing happens to a man until God plants a seed and allows that person to come to faith. But in the good question to ask in choosing and appointing an elder this is why I'm kind of strongly um, um, hesitant about finding someone, recruiting someone. It's a good question to ask if you have your children. Would you trust your child with that man? You consider that and then appoint an elder. If the answer is yes, I think that's a good litmus test. Right? Right? I think the context here is the contrast not uh, between believing An unbelieving child, I think it's between obedient, respectful children versus lawless and uncontrolled children. I think godly men should be compelled to give themselves fully to the work of teaching their children. Training them in the word. All Christian men should have this motivation. Although this is what the text might say, I think all men should do everything they can to remove any ungodly testimonies in your life. And to portray or display with wholeheartedly everything godly you could possibly expose your children to. To lead them to Christ. Then lead the rest up to God. Okay? Lead the rest up to God. J.C. Ryle says this in The Duties of a Parent. Says, Be aware of that miserable delusion that parents can do nothing for their children and must leave them alone. And wait for grace and sit still. The devil rejoices in such reasoning. I know that you cannot convert your child, but I also, know, I also know that God expressly says, train up a child in the way he should go, and that God never laid a command on a man which he should not give a man the grace to perform. Our duty is not standing still in debate, but go forward and obey. obey. I think that should be our approach. This is our approach. We should do everything we can to bring them to godliness and to saving knowledge. But again, at the end, it's up to God. I think I'm convicted by this, by scripture, and seeing life in general, that some things, especially in this area, I am helpless. And I could go out and try to preach and meet 100 people and share the gospel. But that's all I could do. I could do it the most earnest way The greatest persuasion I could possibly muster up, but it's still up to God. I feel helpless in this area. And that's the way we should be. You know, it's the most helpless feeling, not having control over your your the salvation of your children. We all want to take part in that, and to come to that. But this fact causes my heart to be humble before God. And I need to rest in that. I need to rest in His sovereignty. And I just go as far as to say, rejoice in God's sovereignty. That even my children, which I'm a steward of in the short time I am on this earth, but ultimately, they're God's children. Again, the mental approach, we should be that the salvation, their salvation depends on me. We should approach it that way and live like that. But the truth of the matter is, that it is up to God. So, just a few final thoughts: is that again, elder must be a responsible Christian husband, father with reputation for providing his family emotionally and spiritually. Elders should be manage his family well. One that has their children committed to having their children being taught teaching obedience and the way of scripture and living your life that way. I think one who thinks that hey now their salvation doesn't belong to me and we're off the hook and that's completely wrong. That's wrong. That's sinful. I think we need to be good stewards in that area. And the final analysis only God could point man to this office. I think one thing For those who aspire to be an elder or leader in the church like Paul live your life as an example and be able to say brethren join in following my example. Live your life that way. If you can say that to others you're well on your way for leadership. And those of you who are in leadership already speaking to James and myself and some of the other leaders at the end you want this to uh, you want your church to say this about you, as Hebrews thirteen seven says: those who led, who spoke the word of God, and those who conduct in faith, worth uh, worth of worthy of imitation. Remember this thought: strong leaders do not emerge from strong church. Strong church emerges from strong strong leadership. I repeat that. Strong leaders do not emerge from strong church. Strong churches emerge from strong leadership. The responsibility of the flock is to affirm the individual. Recognize God's election. I think, elder, you just—it's—it's a it's confirming thing. It's not appointment, but recognize one's leadership, one's a person's role. And God's selection. You know, although few are chosen, it's a noble thing to aspire to. If any Christian man, if any Christian man desires and aspires to this position, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I think all men should aspire to that. Because these are characteristics that are for an upstanding Christian to Christian level at his highest. All men should aspire to that. Now whether you become a leader or any other servant in the church, it is fine. I think personal view, lastly I close with this, is that the leaders of Cornerstone will endeavor to withstand the temptation of putting people into eldership without careful and much consideration and prayer. Installing elders who honor the church is a very critical thing in the life of the church. You know, since the family is very important in this sermon this morning, I want to talk about the elders' families first. You know, in our annual elders' strategic meeting every year, we examined the threats of our church and one thing that we came up with was non supportive wives of leadership. Non supportive wives. And this is very true. You know, James and I cannot do what we do. I think other leaders, those of you married men, cannot lead your flocks you do without your wife's support. Okay. When we decided to plant this church, James and I volunteered for this. You know, we signed up for it. But our wives, they had no choice in the matter. They came along for the ride. But I thank God for them, Saren and Sophie and other women. They, they lovingly support what we do. I have not heard one issue of a family debate regarding that. Regardless of what people say, we value women's role in our church. It is absolutely critical to the health of this church and on our way to honoring God. We thank you for sharing your wives and sharing your husbands with the church. We thank you for your sacrifice and Lindsay and Derek are here, and Elizabeth is not here, we thank you guys for sharing your fathers with the church. Your father's prayers is that, maybe James, you could play this for Elizabeth 10 years from now, is that your father's prayer is all of you would grow up in the knowledge and fear of God. That is our prayer. And I said this in the beginning, that this eldership job is the most daunting task I've ever had to encounter. There's no on and off switch for an elder. right? You don't see, when I come here, I don't act like an accountant, right? When I go home, I don't act like an accountant. Wherever I go, whether a home, whether being a husband, being a father, or being a brother, or being an accountant, the elder title always goes with me. I always carry that title. Whether I'm an employee, I'm an elder. I'm a father slash elder. I'm a husband slash elder. I can never shed that title. I live in constant but healthy fear of that fact. It is a truly a way of life. But one thing that the eldership allows me to do and it's the greatest privilege in the world is that I get to love the church. I think James shares this view with me, my perspective on this, and I always tell myself that no one is going to love the church more than me. That's my attitude. I need to set the, set the standard. I need to be the leader of love in the church. Leader of forgiveness in the church. How do you expect flock to, your flock to love your church when I can't? And I consider it, therefore, the greatest honor because I get to love the church like no other. I think the view from this side of the pulpit is different at times. It is heart-wrenching. Sometimes when people leave, when we counsel people, we pour our hearts into people, and it doesn't quite turn out all right, it's heart-wrenching. You know, when we kind of um, uh, had difficult times earlier this year. And, but there are times that are just fantastic, like today. We come here, and we have a great report from overseas. Our members are use, being used like that. I never thought Daniel Pill would be used like that preach a sermon, and share the gospel. I would, we would, I would sometimes think, man, it doesn't get much better than this. Life does not get much better than this, than that being an elder at Cornerstone. I get the privilege of loving you guys, fellowshiping you guys, and loving the church of Jesus Christ. But sometimes it's painful as well. Although some may hurt us, but we still love you guys. We want to focus on what you do and shepherd so that you would grow into mature men and women. Even and James and I, in our elder team, we confront one another, we rebuke one another. Sometimes we do it to a point where we hurt each other. Okay? We confront our weaknesses. And we're even when we rebuke one another, we're getting better at that. So we rebuke one another a little bit, maybe harshly, but justifiably so. When we do that, because we're brothers, we're tied in so close. Sometimes when your closest person does that, it hurts more. It really hurts. I think, James, you agree with me? Okay. But the bond that God has given us in this leadership is, team is phenomenal. It's a definite, I think, not just to toot my own horn, but the strength of this church, we want to preserve that unity. We have unity, I think, that is precious. And it's a, sometimes a difficult relationship, but it is the best of relationships. I trust my brother James immensely. I have utmost respect for him. I, think the feet, I, hope, I like to think that feeling is mutual. And I remember earlier I said, would you appoint a man? When you appoint a man, would you trust your children with him? You know, and that's one thing I think James and I do. In our wills, we have both made up our wills, and we both asked each other, if anything were to happen to me or happen to James. That we would entrust each other with our children. It's an official document that we have actually signed to entrust our children. If ever anything to ever happen, and I'm glad you do so. In conclusion, it is my honor and privilege to serve all of you as we serve one another. Most importantly, we need to remember that we do all this to glorify God. So, final application I leave with you today is that that you would pray for us. The today's leaders and the future leaders of Cornerstone that God would raise up godly, biblical, qualified men to lead this church for His glory. Let's pray.